Before we get started today, I want to take a moment to talk about the sponsor of today's episode, Spoonflower. On Spoonflower, you can upload your designs and print custom fabric, wallpaper, and gift wrap. There's no minimum order or setup fee, and your design is private unless you decide to make it available for sale in the Spoonflower marketplace. As a listener to this podcast, you get 15% off each item in your order when you use the code ABBY15 at checkout. That's A-B-B-Y-1-5 at checkout. Visit Spoonflower.com and give it a try. Now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 65 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about illustration in many different forms with my guest, Phoebe Wall. Phoebe Wall is an illustrator whose vibrant work focuses on themes of comfort, nostalgia, and connection to nature and one another. A kindergarten dropout, Phoebe complained that there wasn't enough time to draw in school. She spent the majority of her childhood running wild in Pacific Northwest backyards before attending the Rhode Island School of Design and graduating with a BFA in illustration in 2013. Phoebe works in a variety of mediums from watercolor and collage to fabric sculpture, an obsession with detail, pattern, and texture present throughout. She's a regular contributor to Taproot Magazine and her first children's book, Sonia's Chickens was published by Tundra and was awarded a Kirkus Star. She currently lives in Bellingham, Washington. Phoebe Wall, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great talking to you. So you are a kindergarten dropout. Uh, <laughs> what I know you were unschooled, and I've read a lot about unschooling as a mom, um, but I've never actually met someone who was unschooled themselves as a person. <laughs> so um, so like what does that mean? What is unschooling? Yeah. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a living example that it can work. <laughs> you know, it's not totally terrifying. Um, unschooling, I mean, it can be interpreted pretty broadly. It's basically a branch of homeschooling. Um, you know, it varies family to family how people do it, but the main kind of phil- philosophical tenets revolve around child-guided education. So it often strips away the kind of traditional roles of teacher and student. It's about understanding learning to be something that doesn't just happen in classrooms. You know, it's a constant part of every minute of our lives, no matter our age. And it's the idea that with enough freedom and support and access to resources, children can learn everything they need to learn just through their own passion and natural curiosity. Okay. Um, I think that people, though, hear that and then they're like, yeah, but what if you don't have a passion or natural curiosity (laughs) for algebra? Like, what happens then? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, by traditional academic standards, like, I totally have gaps in my education. And I think really, though, all kids do, whether you go to school or not. Because what I loved about being unschooled was that um, it kind of allowed me to learn everything in relation to what I was excited about. And you know, I was someone who specifically had something like art, like I was really focused on it. And so it it is, it was like really easy for me to learn everything in relation to that. But I think even if you don't have one specific thing, um, learning kind of becomes more meaningful when you're learning it in context of everyday life. So there are huge gaps in my education. You know, I know enough math to get by 
as an adult in the world. I run my own business. I measure my paper. You know, I like, um, I took pre-algebra in high school when I was a senior in high school. And that was kind of the only formal math training I ever had. And I was finally ready to learn. And, you know, like I said, I, I know enough to exist in the world. And if I ever need to know chemistry, if I ever need to know more physics and stuff than I do, I can learn. And that's also what unschooling equips you for is being able to say, okay, I don't know this thing. I'm going to learn it now because learning isn't this static thing that, you know, starts and stops with the classroom. It's fluid and, you know, I can pick anything up at any time. And I took pre-algebra and algebra and advanced algebra and all of those things. And I honestly think I know just enough math now to function as an adult. In other words, it yeah. all went in, but it all also went right back out because it wasn't necessarily related to anything that I cared about. And I was actually much more interested in a lot of other things than in that. And so totally. I don't know. It's like, did I really learn it? You know what I mean? Like I did yeah. well on the test, but did I, I don't know if I really learned it. So Exactly. And, you know, I, and it was like a huge source of, you know, worry for my parents because it's really scary. Like I think now like it's so brave of my parents to just completely remove my sister and I from this thing that our society relies on, you know, like standardized education and to take your kids out of that must be really terrifying, you know, and to be like, oh, my God, my kid is not interested in math. Like, she's not going to survive. How is it going to work? And and somehow it all worked out. And and it was hard for my mom. And it was hard for me, too. You know, I, I did develop, like, a little bit of a, a phobia surrounding math because it was the self-fulfilling prophecy of, like, I'm bad at this thing. And then when I sat down to do it, I had this mental block of thinking I was bad at it. And so it was hard for me to even learn. And so it was also you know, part of really learning that stuff is about, you know, releasing into that vulnerability and saying, I don't know how to do this, but I'm just going to figure it out. Right. And it sets you up as a lifelong learner, which I love. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've learned so much as an adult because I've really wanted to learn those things. And it's been applicable to me, you know, about how to run a business, for example, which was something I never thought I'd be interested in. Yeah. And now I like, it's like all I think about. So it's very, yeah, it's really interesting to think about that. Like, you know, you can learn as an adult and school is not where learning ends. So yeah, or, yeah, or even where learning starts necessarily. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, it's all about like play, like everything you learn in play and just exploring. It's like, that's just as valuable. Like that's all kinds of learning. And, you know, it's sad for me sometimes when I hear kids being like, learning is dumb, learning is boring. And I'm like, you're learning right now just saying that sentence. Like right. it's not, that's not how it works. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, totally interesting. Okay, so what did your parents do for work? Um, my mom is a social worker. She worked at the hospital for a long time and she worked part-time during the time that we were homeschooled. She just worked every other weekend. Um, and now she's a geriatric social worker. So she works with older people for hospice. My yeah. dad works for city parks. He um, preserves spaces for green spaces and parks and designs trails and stuff like that. Okay. So what did they do for fun? I know your dad, um, maybe related to his job, was really interested in like the native plants that grew where you lived in Bellingham. Um, so what did your parents do for fun? Yeah. I mean, both of my parents are very passionate outdoors people and environmentalists. Um, yeah. My dad's always been really into native plants. Our yard growing up was like a, like a Northwest prairie environment, which usually people think of the Northwest being super lush and green, which it totally is. But there's also some environments that are like dry grass prairies. And he was all about like cultivating that like to the nth degree. So he would have like controlled burns where he would like light the whole yard on fire and, (laughs) (laughs) and all the dry grass would burn. And then these flowers would come up from that. Um, 
so he is, yeah, all about kind of like preserving um, a lot of the like natural environment that Washington has and all the kind of microclimates within that. And my mom too is a really passionate environmentalist. I mean, both of them were like big backpackers and hikers. They biked to work every single day for my entire childhood. Um, and they're also both really wonderfully creative people and inquisitive people. And I think that's like also a key, you know, going back to the unschooling thing is being confident and inquisitive and creative with your kids. Cause you don't know the answers most of the time. No one does, but to be able to ask questions with your kids and be interested in the world and excited about the world and to model that, which my parents totally did, you know, they were always asking my sister and I questions and waiting for our answers. And then we'd all figure out the answer together, you know, so they're very engaged kind of natural teachers in the traditional sense. And were the people who lived in your neighborhood like you guys? Like, in other words, did the, did the people next door have like, <laughs> did the people next door have like a green lawn that they mowed every day? You know, like, <laughs> what, or were they also sort of like, di- like sort of living in a different way than society necessarily dictates? Um, yeah, I mean, I think probably a different way in that, you know, depends so hugely on what, what everyone's way is listening, you know, like, cause I think around here where I live, I live in a pretty, um, you know, like kind of a crunchy college town. And so the way people were living around me was probably is in general, pretty similar to the way we were living, but you know, more neighbors were more similar than others, but we definitely had a really tight neighborhood. You know, we knew everyone within a mile or more, and there was a lot of kids our age in the neighborhood. So also like, we were this wild pack of kids and most of our neighbor kids were in school. So then we had like this rich alone time. And then when they'd get out of school, we'd all run around as a pack and we'd play hide hide and seek and sardines. And, you know, we could go freely into our neighbor's yards and we knew we were safe and we knew that they were there to help us if we needed something. Right. It sounds pretty idyllic, I have to say. Like it sounds like (laughs) a really nice childhood. I mean, would you- It definitely was. Yeah. I think a lot of people look back in their childhood and they, they don't necessarily feel like that. You know, they feel like there were hard parts or there were parts that- you know, they felt like they were a misfit or something like that. But it doesn't sound like you felt that way. Yeah, I I definitely think I had a really idyllic childhood. And, and, you know, like the whole unschooling thing and the way I grew up is like, it's very much kind of an existence born of privilege, you know, like, because, you know, a lot of parents can't afford to work so part time that they can stay at home with their kids. And, you know, that's all it's, it's a bubble, you know, of, you know, who is able to do that in the first place. And my parents had a ton of support from my grandparents, and even people like the neighbors who'd had kids and done similar things. And, um, but yeah, it, it was very idyllic and not to say there weren't hard parts, but I feel really lucky to have had like a very kind of fantasy childhood. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So when it came time to leave and to go to RISD for school, Mm -hmm. was there like a culture shock a little bit for you? (laughs) Like, were you homesick? Cause you're going from, you know, the West coast in Washington to the East Coast in Rhode Island and <laughs> Providence. And, you know, yeah. I mean, there's lots of artsy people. Obviously, it's RISD. But so, you know, wh- what did that feel like? Were you homesick? I definitely was. Um, I mean, it was a bit of a shock just in terms of living so far away. I mean, I think culturally and socially, it wasn't such a huge shock because I did go, even though I was officially an unschooler for high school, I did take classes part time. So I would go to high school and kind of be there all day. And I was really active in theater and arts and had a ton of friends. So I started kind of transitioning into like what it's like to be a part of a, an academic community before I left home. And that was huge. Um, but just being away from home was really hard. And I'd only been to the East coast 
one other time, which was to visit RISD. And then I went there and that was the second time I'd ever been to New England. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, having been unschooled basically your whole life, except for the, those years in high school where you were sort of participating in the community, mm-hmm. you know, why, like, why was college important? Like what ended up being important about being at college? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, a lot of it is the connections you make and, um, you know, in art school, to be a part of a community focused on such similar things is so exciting because the bar is set so high when you're in a community that values you. And, you know, I was I grew up in a really supportive community, but still, you know, there's a kind of like, you know, a little bit of a scoff when you're like, I want to be an artist. And, you know, there's a lot of times a little bit of like a oh, well, like that's not super practical, you know, quote unquote. Sure, and, yeah. and said when you're in art school, it's this incredible value validation. And I think um, it's only once you're validated like that, that you can be truly challenged. And that's the only way to grow and improve. So I think college for me was all about being around like-minded people, kind of being a part of this collective consciousness and making physical connections, you know, as far as jobs and friends and, but being inspired by other people, just being surrounded by this world that was like, what you do is valid. And like, we're going to help you get better by really making you work hard and completely challenging everything you think you know about what you do and why you do it. Gosh, that's such a great point about being validated. And that once you feel validated, then you can invest in it and you can challenge yourself and you can grow. Because before you feel like it's real or it's important or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's valued, you sort of don't invest in it and you don't put everything into it because you're like, well, totally. it's sort of halfway. I don't really know, you know, but once yeah. you're like, I'm actually really doing this for real, you guys, then, uh, you know, you do, you do like it, that it opens doors for you mentally. Yeah, totally. And yeah. like, I think, I think kind of like bad art is a direct result of art not being valued in our culture, you know, because there's not enough people saying like, this thing is great and important. So therefore like, there's not enough people challenging each other. Yeah. God, that's a great point. Okay, so um, so you started working for Taproot Magazine, which is this beautiful magazine. You can buy it in Whole Foods. It's everywhere. Um, and you started um, working for them as an illustrator when you were still in college. And I wonder how you got connected with them. The um, editor is Amanda Blake Soul of the beautiful blog Soul Mama, which I've read for many, many years. She started her blog when Amanda started her blog when I started mine back in 2005. So, and I just wonder, like, did you meet Amanda somewhere or like, how did you get on their radar screen? Yeah. Um, I met Amanda. Well, let's see. I didn't actually meet her in person until later. She emailed me when I was a junior in college. Um, and she was then working on the first issue of Taproot and putting it together. And she'd somehow found my work on, I want to say like Pinterest or she'd seen it online somewhere. I don't know how, because I, I was like constantly posting my work throughout college, which is funny now. Cause I look back and I'm like, ew, why is that painting on Google images? <laughs> you know, but, <laughs> but at the time it was really good that I, um, was putting my work out there because it made it so that slowly, you know, my blog started getting more hits and people like Amanda, you know, like my work was popping up for her. Um, so she emailed me out of the blue and I was about to leave on my study abroad program cause that was my junior year of college. And she had a specific piece in mind that I'd already made that she wanted to put in the first issue. And then once I agreed to that, she also had, um, some work for future issues that she wanted me to do. And it was mostly like, it was, it was crazy fortuitous to me because 
it was my first real freelance gig. And you know, Amanda unschools her kids. Yes, and like yes. I had never I'd never heard of her because in college I wasn't like in the like mom blog right. like <laughs> sphere of thinking, you know. Um but so I never heard of her. So I remember just like looking at her blog and just thinking about how crazy it was that out of all the people and all the kind of projects to be linked up with, that it was a, an insane coincidence, you know, that I meet someone else who's unschooling her kids, whose kids are being raised in this way that like I really related to. And this magazine was kind of based on these philosophies that were such a huge part of kind of like my work already. Yeah. I think she must have seen in your work a resonance to what, yeah. you know, she valued, which is amazing. I mean, that yeah. your work is strong enough to just say that with no words, you know? Yeah. So. And I think that was a moment where I was like, oh man, I must be doing something right because somehow like this exact like audience found my work and, and kind of gave me the freedom to make work that I would want to make anyway, but for this huge audience, like I could, I wouldn't be where I'm at without Taproot. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and it's a huge gift. Like everything they've done for me is a gift because it's just provided me with this yeah. group of people who want to see my work and it's work I want to make anyway. <laughs> yeah. And this year you are the Taproot cover artist. So every year, I guess they have like one artist who does all of the covers for the year. So mm -hmm. they had Janine Zlotkis who I've had on this show and Nikki McClure and Jennifer Judd McGee. And now this year it's your year. Yeah. Yeah. Congratulations. That's Thank you. Beautiful. So um, everyone who's listening, go to, you know, wherever you buy magazines or Whole Foods, if you have a Whole Foods near you and look at Taproot and you'll see, um, you'll see Phoebe's uh, illustrations on the cover. So yeah. Yeah. I think so the, cool. the last one that had my work is the one that just came out. So it will be a new cover artist In coming 2016. up. But mm -hmm. yeah, that's great. Okay, cool. So was freelancing in college sort of helpful to you as you transitioned after graduation into being a working artist? Did it kind of give you some experience or confidence or yeah. just like a little income source or, or anything like that? Definitely. I mean, it totally eased the transition because so I started working for Taproot junior year. And then um, the summer after junior year, I was doing some small work for them just for the interiors of the magazines. And then throughout senior year, I was still doing stuff for them. And that meant that by the time I graduated, I was pretty established with having um, just regular work from them. And that was huge. Yeah, because it was it was just something under my belt that I was kind of constantly tinkering it away at a project for them. Um, and so it was like a little source of income and an audience. And, and that really is kind of what enabled me to start my Etsy shop, too, because there was people reading Taproot who were like, we want prints. And, you know, like being exposed to that audience made it so that there was more of a demand for my work. Um, and so that was getting me other work, you know, whether it was family portraits or, you know, teaching at Squam, which I did for Taproot, um, you know, teaching a class there and then being exposed to that audience. Um, yeah, it was huge in easing that transition. I mean, just that little bit of income and something to always be working on while I'm ex still exploring working for other people too. Yeah. I have no idea if you know this, but I wonder how common that is for, like RISD students to get a freelance job, a steady freelance job like that before graduation even happens. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe a few of my friends had one or two projects, you know, they were working on throughout school, you know, a, a, like quite a few of my friends probably had like a few projects towards the end of senior year. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other people I can think of who probably did started doing a little bit of freelancing while they were still in school, but it's not so common, you know, 
Yeah, it's a neat way, though, for a magazine to connect with and build um, a relationship with a, a new artist and sort of bring them through the beginning part of their career. And I think that yeah. that in itself is something really wonderful that Taproot did, too, you know, just to totally. be able to nurture you like that. Um, totally. Yeah. So so you um, talked about studying abroad. You were in Scotland and mm-hmm. you were studying sustainability on what sounds like a tiny island. Um, was it, it, yeah, t- it was it called Findhorn. What what is that? Yeah, Findhorn. Oh, sorry, so, Findhorn. Um, yeah, no, it's okay. So Findhorn is an eco village, and it's not on a tiny island itself. It's on the northeast coast of Scotland, so near Inverness, kind of. Um, but I did spend a week of my program on a tiny island, the Isle, the Isle of Airaid, which is in the Hebrides. Because there is like a small sister community of Findhorn on that island. So part of it was on an island, but most of it was on um, the mainland. And so an eco village is like a community that works to function with as little environmental impact as possible. Um, and I also refer to Findhorn as an intentional community, which is kind of like a community that operates according to common goals and principles. And for Findhorn, that's trying to exist in an environmentally sustainable way and in a way that like fosters connectedness. Living there was a total trip because, you know, you're in this really small community and you're gardening all day and you're interacting with people who like 100% believe in fairies. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like on board and also like, whoa, this is hardcore. You know, these people are like deep in 100% believing in fairies. Wow. Um. So it was like a really interesting experience, a really interesting cultural experience and a really incredible experience. I mean, it was beautiful in Scotland. I loved living there and I was in a group of 13 girls. We were all studying abroad. Um, And so I made some really amazing, really close friendships with the women I was studying with and with people in the community. And, um, you know, places like Findhorn are just great examples of how close small communities with a united sense of purpose can be such huge forces of good in the world. Like I left really inspired to help whatever communities I inhabit, whether that's my family or my neighborhood or, you know, my whole city to feel like safe and respectful and nurturing and sustainable, you know, which is like kind of what Findhorn is a great example of. Yeah. What a transformative experience for you. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So neat. I never have heard of that before. So I'm really, um, I'm really glad that you introduced us to it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, okay. So, um, so you just wrote a book and I want to make sure we talk about your book because it looks just so beautiful. It's called Sonia's Chickens and it's a children's book, an illustrated children's book that you wrote as well as illustrated. And it came out in August um, published by Tundra, which is a division of Random House in Canada. And I understand that they came to you. So how did they mm-hmm. find you? Yeah, well, I so I originally made Sonia's chickens in college for a class. And I, I posted um, like some bits of the dummy book, like the draft of the story. So the dummy was just kind of like a a mock-up of the book with a few final illustrations, sketches, and then the text laid out like it would be in a final book. So I posted some images of that on my blog in college. And Tundra must have found it somehow. Um, I don't know, like Amanda, whether maybe it was on Pinterest or on my blog or something, or they were maybe they were looking at like RISD students because publishers probably do that too, you know, kind of like see who's in illustration and who's going to be coming into that world. Um so they found me and contacted me the summer after I graduated 
which was a couple months after I'd made that first draft of the story in class. And my friend Esme Shapiro, who's also a RISD illustration alum, happened to be an intern at Tundra when I sent them my full manuscript. And so she was kind of like reporting to me about what they were saying, but also couldn't really say anything because it was a secret and it was driving me crazy. But um, it ultimately was great that she was there because she was able to be like, this girl's my friend and she's great and you should work with her. And Tundra was super wonderful to work with. They formally, you know, asked me, you know, if they could publish my book. And I said yes. And so then we kind of for real started that process starting in like summer, fall after I graduated. So that would have been 2013. And um, then my book came out last summer, August 2015. So it was a long process. <laughs> right. Um, for, so first of all, I think that both of these, um, both the Taproot and the Sonia's Chickens experiences really emphasize the importance of sharing your work online. I mean, mm-hmm. I think in both ways, like you're not even sure how they found you, but you know that they found you online. Yeah. And so if you have work and you're so fearful that somebody's going to copy it or it's going to be, you know, repinned without attribution to you or all of the bad things that can happen to you on the internet, um, and you're so fearful of those things that you don't put them out there, then you end up not getting uh, these opportunities. And so yeah. I just think I want to underline that, that that's really important. Yeah. I want to pause things for a second to talk to our sponsor, Spoonflower. There's someone at Spoonflower I think you're going to want to meet. Um, I'm Janet Tallis, and I'm the print manager here at Spoonflower. I've heard that you've been at Spoonflower forever. Yes, yes. I I started here a little less than six years ago, and as a company, we're a little less than eight years old. Um, and I remember, you know, the first location that they were in was in a basement. I unfortunately did not get to see the smelly basement, but I did get to see a pretty rough, um, pretty cool loft space, uh, big enough to hold maybe eight of us. <laughs> so it's it's been a while, yeah. And I know that the Spoonflower printers have names. Um, yes. Can you tell me what some of them are named and how they got their names? Oh my goodness. Well, um, we've got about 27 printers right now. We've had a lot of printers and a lot of names. So, um, you know, some of them have themes. We have a Star Trek group of printers. We've got a Kirk, a Spock, a Bones, and an Enterprise. Um, we've got some Star Wars themed printers too. We have a Millennium Falcon. Um, we've got Muppets. We've got Goonies, uh, Popeye, Olive Oil, um, Batman Robin. Um, a lot of times uh, when we get new printers in, it's is really imperative that we have names for them um, for a couple of reasons. We we really are attached to our machines. Um, you know, when you run something for eight hours a day, you really start to get to a feeling like they're your baby. And um, it also helps us kind of uh, understand the personality of the printer since since each printer has its own quirks. Um, but when we get new printers in, we actually take a company-wide vote uh, so people get a chance to suggest names. Um, it's really fun. Uh, we're, uh, we're oddly superstitious about it. If we give the printers bad names, we think they're going to behave badly. Um, and my example for that would be we had a couple of printers named Thelma and Louise, and they never behaved right at all. <laughs> <laughs> so the next time you place an order to get your custom fabric printed at Spoonflower, it might just be printed by Janet, and she might be printing it on the Millennium Falcon. And now back to my conversation with Phoebe Wall. And you've been blogging since you were 15. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had a um, like a Google blogger blog starting when I was in high school, and I would post my projects, 
um, like I said, I took classes like at my local high school. And so I was like doing art independent studies there and started to do ceramics. And so I would post things on the blog and, you know, it was probably only like my mom looking at it. But then slowly when you have like one home on the internet for a long time, it starts to just slowly get more and more traffic. And, um, I think like one of the biggest things that started getting me traffic was when I posted my admissions drawings that I did for RISD because then I think like my name started to come up when people Googled like RISD admissions drawings. Mm. Um, right. Yeah, because RISD does like the bicycle drawing. You have to draw a bicycle as part of your portfolio. And I think maybe I like tagged it or titled it like RISD bicycle drawing. So then it started coming up. And I think that was probably like a big thing in my blog starting to get more notice. Right. Because that's something that people want to know about. Yeah. And so exactly. they're going to like, Google what it. do other people do for this? Right. Right. <laughs> right. I, mean, right. I Googled it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you did. Absolutely. Okay. So that's yeah. good. And I like that idea too of having one home on the internet for a long time. For yeah. sure. I think that that's really important. I think another thing that people often do is they sort of start and then they want a fresh start and then they aren't really mm-hmm. satisfied with the first post, the second post, or it's embarrassing. And so they just delete yeah. that whole blog and start again. And um, I understand there there does sometimes come a time, and I think you did actually delete that old blog and start yeah. over. So there does come a time sometimes when it is appropriate to do that when you're starting fresh. But for the most part, it's probably the best advice to stay where you are and just totally. keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so tell us what Sonia's Chickens is about. Just to kind of give people who maybe haven't read it yet and maybe would like to buy it for, you know, a child that they know or for their own child or grandchild. Mm-hmm. What is it about? Yeah. So it's about a little girl raising chickens. Her parents bring, her dad brings home three chicks and he says, you know, like it's your job to take care of these chicks and it's a big responsibility, but you can do it. And so she puts all of her love and all of her energy into raising these three little chicks and they grow up and, Um, one night, you know, she hears a clattering outside and it seems that, you know, some kind of creature has broken into the chicken house and taken one of the chickens and it's a little bit scary for her. Um, but you know, her dad comes up, comes outside and scoops her up and they end up having a, you know, a really good talk about, you know, why it's sad that this thing happened, you know, that the chicken was killed and taken by this animal, but also about, what must it be like for that animal? You know, like what was that animal's intention maybe in taking this chicken? And so it's basically kind of a story about like, ultimately it's like, cause a lot of people are like, Oh, you wrote a story about death. And I'm like, I guess so, but it's about life. And it's also about lack of control, you know, like lack of control in the universe saying like, sometimes a creature does this and it's not fair to us and it doesn't make sense to us, but you know, that's how it is. And we can be sad about it and we can grieve you know, her parents have a little ceremony with her. They have a funeral. They make a little grave for the chicken, you know, and then they pick themselves up and they rebuild the coop and, you know, they keep going. Yeah. And, you know, I think kids really do struggle with those bigger questions. And I have a nine-year-old, uh, I have three daughters, but my nine-year-old, she's long struggled with Noah's Ark, the story of Noah's Ark, because, um, you know, a, a pair of each kind of animal comes on the ark and then the floodwaters rise and all the other animals are killed. Yeah. And she's just desperately upset by the fact yeah. that they were innocent and why did they have to die? Yeah. And so, and you know, it really upsets her. Like she'll cry about it. Like she's in fourth grade and she is still really, she's been upset about it for years. Yeah. So, you know, I do think that these are issues that, you know, you might avoid them and say, oh, a children's book about death, but really... It is about life, and and also these are questions that kids really do worry about. Yeah, totally. And I think ultimately, like I was 
because I do have a new story um, that I'm working on, and oh, I was good. thinking about I was thinking about how it's similar to Sonia's chickens and how it's different, and um, you know, I was thinking a lot about how both of them are kind of about kids being trusted and trusting themselves, and and I decided that's something that I want to write about that that's something I'm interested in writing about because I think Sonia's chickens is also about you know, being trusted, you know, her parents trust her to take care of these animals, something out of her control happens. And then her parents trust her and respect her enough to give her the real information about what's going on and about how to deal with these things that happen in life, you Mm. know? Yeah. Real information. That's key too. Yeah. Mm, That's great. Okay. So, um, so people should go pick up that book because, um, (laughs) I, I think, well, it's already gotten, you know, lots and lots of acclaim and I, and I think rightfully so. And I think one of the things that resonates so much with people about your illustrations is their tenderness and their sort of a representation of the quietness in life. There's not like a big drama or lots of intrigue. It's just like a family on a picnic basket or a family (laughs) seated around the table. And um, there's a story clearly. And you can kind of, as soon as you see it, you're like, what's happening? You know, who is this person and how are they in relation to the other person that's there? And what are they thinking about them? But just kind of this soft warmth. And I wonder if you can describe the feelings that you're working to evoke when you are making these illustrations. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the biggest push I have behind why I create the work I create, you know, whether that's my paintings or whether it's work in other mediums is I feel this intense drive to kind of make work that I wanted to see or have when I was a kid. Um, And, you know, it's more than that, too. It's also the work that I need to kind of, you know, manifest my future and illustrate my present moment. But such a huge part of it is like thinking about what kinds of images and what kinds of stories I just like ate up when I was a kid and, and, and a real drive to kind of create a similar feeling. And so I, I think a lot of illustration to me is getting back to the, to that preciousness of childhood and, um, kind of returning to these images because I always, I always loved stories that were like really warm and really rich with detail Um, but didn't necessarily have a huge dramatic story. And, you know, maybe I love stories like that too, but I also loved a lot of kind of quiet old books where it's, you're kind of partaking in the day of the life with this character and it's very simple and it's kind of easily digestible, but it still can be really impactful. Yeah. Um, And you draw women particularly well, or maybe you draw a lot of women. Um, and, and I, one of the things that always strikes me is that they aren't thin necessarily and they aren't <laughs> necessarily conventionally pretty and they aren't necessarily young and they aren't all white. So they're just sort of like real women. Yeah. Yeah. And do you want to just tell us a little bit about sort of the way that you think about drawing women? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think for the most part, you know, they're me and... I, it's interesting looking at, um, the work I made when I was young, like say when I was in middle school and I was like very into drawing, like these very angular, edgy, um, super thin women, like smoking cigarettes and looking really angsty. And of course, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I I do think it's interesting because that's never been what I look like and what I'm about. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been really interesting to watch my, the way that I draw women grow alongside the way that I've grown and settled into my own body and my own self. 
um, because there was like this slow organic movement of the women in my drawing starting to look more like me. And, and it, and it kind of settled alongside me becoming more comfortable in my own skin. Um, and I think the way, um, yeah, like the way that I draw women teaches me that I am actually more comfortable with myself than I think I am, you know, because I'm like, oh, but like I drew this woman to look specifically the way I look. So like I'm, I must be more comfortable and have more love for that than, than I give myself credit for. Yeah, um, I just love it. And I love I love your like the naked women who are just like <laughs> themselves. It's just I I mean, I can't even explain to you. I just really appreciate it and love it. And that sort of brings me to want to talk about the zine that you published recently on your blog. It's just stuck with me um mm-hmm. so much. It's called Gray Area and can you describe what it's about for people who maybe haven't seen it? I'll link to it in the show notes cuz I think everybody should go see it, but Yeah. Um well, it was a zine I created um, in the fall. I think I made it in September. And it was kind of a, a personal chronicling of a miscarriage I had after an unplanned pregnancy. Um, I got pregnant on an IUD. So it was like a total surprise. And I was only aware of the pregnancy for four days before I had a miscarriage. Um, so I was six six weeks in, I think. So I um, I was sincerely torn when I found out about whether or not I wanted to have a baby, and hence the title of the zine, Gray Area, um, because that really what it is what it was to me. It was like I because I, I kind of always thought that like oh if I if I ever get pregnant and if I'm with someone who I love and they're my steady partner, like of course at this point in my life, you know, in my mid twenties, um, of course I'd have a baby, and so I was really surprised that when it was happening to me, it was not that straightforward at all. (laughs) Like it was so not black and white. Um, and yeah, I, I hadn't decided when I miscarried whether or not I wanted to have a baby. Um, and so in a way the miscarriage was a little bit of a relief because I didn't have to make that decision. Um, but it was also hard to have that decision taken away from me. You know, I, I wasn't able to be empowered in one choice or the other. Um, and I made the zine afterwards, a couple months afterwards, just as a way to kind of process and chronicle what had happened. And I made it without any specific intention because um, I just, yeah, it was just kind of a way of create, creatively processing um, all the emotions I was feeling and what was happening to me and everything that had happened. Um, and it, I don't know, I think as an artist, like it's, it's really important to be constantly thinking critically about your work and um, about why you make it, about how it serves you and how it serves others. And this project invited a really good conversation about that because I was a little wary of putting a story so raw and personal out into the world. Yeah. Um, Like I made it for myself, for my own process and deciding whether or not it belonged in the world was hard because I think just like the drawing you know, not thin women thing. It's like as women, we're really thirsty for, um, you know, to see ourselves represented truthfully in media. And I am a creator of media. So it starts with me. And and that's kind of like a lot of weight on my shoulders, but it's also this really exciting thing. And, and you know, that's why I draw women who aren't thin is because I personally need to do that because I have this thirst um, that's not fulfilled by a lot of the women I see in illustration. 
Um, and I think the same thing was kind of occurring with this zine where I had this thing that was so raw and so personal that I'd created. Um, but I also kind of felt like putting it out there and sharing the story was a part, like was an essential part of my process because of that thirst to, to have people relate to it. And, you know, because I, th I showed it to a couple friends and, you know, they, we're just like, oh, man, you really need to put this out in the world. This is so important. People don't talk about this. You know, people don't talk about this indecision and that, like, you can you can choose to have an abortion and still grieve. You know, you can see an abortion as in a pregnancy and still grieve. You know, you can think about that as a death or you can not think about that as a death and all those emotions are allowed. And, yeah. and basically putting something out there that says, like, this is 100 percent about mixed emotions and they're all allowed. And, and that being a really important thing for, for other women who've had similar experiences to hear started to like really kind of pound inside of me. And I was like, I think I need to put it out there. Like, I think I need to share it. But, but of course that it's like, well, how does that change the experience? How does it change the work? Like, what does it mean if this is a product that I'm selling? You know, how does that change it? You know, I was like, is it right to take money for this thing that was like this experience that was a really intimate experience? And and it's a discussion I also had with my boyfriend because, of course, then it's like this story wasn't just mine. You know, it's his. And and of course, it's also mine individually, but it's was also very much this collective thing we went through together. So it ended up just inviting a really good and really interesting conversation that ultimately at the end of it, I felt empowered in putting it out there. Um, and I, I feel really good about it now because the feedback I received from other women was like staggering. And, and I think in general, when this, you know, before even the zine, when this experience happening happened, and I told women in my life about it, the amount of stories that came out of the woodwork was staggering. Yeah. And that's what's amazing to me. Like I, you know, I, I told multiple women in my life, and they said, Oh, my gosh, the exact same thing happened to me. And not only once, but twice and to all these other people I know. And you know, I was like, oh, my gosh, no one talks about it. But this happens all the time. Absolutely. Know? And I think as women, you know, all of us have a reproductive history. And mm -hmm. it's just totally invisible. And so you might assume that everybody's is sort of very straightforward. But in fact, in my experience, almost everybody's isn't straightforward. And yeah. almost everybody, we've had miscarriages, abortions, stillbirths. We've desperately wanted to be pregnant and then have not been able to be pregnant. We've desperately not wanted to be pregnant and then been pregnant. And all of yeah. the mixed emotions are there. So yeah. when you put that out and say, like, this is what happened to me, I think almost every grown woman could look at that. And even if that's not their exact experience, could feel like that. I know how that must feel, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it's, I really think it's wonderful. And it brings me to um, a t-shirt that I bought from you. Um, that's my favorite t-shirt of all time. I love it so much. And it says feminism is freedom on it, um, which is kind of a weird phrase. Feminism is freedom, right? Like I sort of, when I first thought, yeah. I was like, I think I want that. And then I'm like, but what does, what does that mean? Feminism is freedom. And then I realized that what feminism really means is the freedom to be whomever we want to be. And for many women, myself included, that means being in a nurturing role as a mom and doing, being a maker and doing like enjoying sort of traditional women's work in a way. Like yeah. I love to sew and I love to cook and I love taking care of children. And so it's like, uh, you know, is that 
can you do that and be a feminist? And anyway, feminism is freedom means absolutely yes. So, (laughs) um, and I read an interview with you where you said that um, to say that domesticity is synonymous with submission is to dishonor the thousands of years worth of strong and independent women who have acted as homemaker and the men and women who continue to passionately fill this role of their own volition. So can you talk more about that idea that feminism is freedom? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the statement was part of me thinking a lot about my own identity and my own desires, you know, because I am kind of like very feminine. I want to have kids and, you know, like I am, you know, very... I feel like a very kind of like traditionally feminine role, but, but at some point, you know, I think I went through a phase of being like, well, what does that mean? And like, is that okay? And, you know, like, how can I reclaim that role? Um, Because I think, like, I really started thinking about the fact that, you know, as women, you know, we're stuck in this paradox where we can't win. If we don't fit into one bracket or another, we're shamed. And if we fit into the bracket too comfortably, if we reclaim the bracket, we're still shamed. Um, And, you know, to me, like, feminism is about the kind of systematic destigmatization of all things female. And, And, of course, women have, you know, more traditionally been in the homemaker role, so it's different than, you know, men put into that role. But that's a place where I'm like, men stand to gain so much from feminism because, um, you know, the stigma of, you know, men staying home and, you know, being in that nurturing role and and still the stigma of women doing that, you know, even with, you know, being more empowered in the workplace and stuff like that. There's the flip side of also feeling shame to go home and to be with your baby and to be a stay-at-home mom and and that's kind of what I mean about like you can't win, you know, you're yeah. stuck in the paradox. Um, yeah, and and I think like feeling that kind of shame about wanting those things was like a direct result of interacting with certain feminists who were, you know, wasting a lot of time shaming one another about how to be real feminists. And I kind of feel like that is that kind of shaming is just a waste of time. It's a direct result of internalized sexism and you know, most people are victims of internalized sexism at one point or another. I know I am all the time. And and part of being a feminist is admitting that vulnerability and it's examining why we hold the assumptions we do, you know, about what it means to be a woman, about what it means to be a feminist. You know, I think it's good to just constantly think critically about your actions and your voice and, you know, your privilege or your lack of it. And, and ultimately, feminism to me means and is freedom. Like you said, it's, it's freedom from stereotypes. It's freedom from oppression. It's the destigmatization of all things traditionally female to say that like women's things are good and okay, and they should no longer be associated with weakness. Yeah. And I was just reading an article yesterday about there's like this new app that you can get. I think it's for Gmail or something like that, where it edits out like weak words, like just and sort of, and sort of words that are typically associated with that women use to soften soften their message. And um, so this article was sort of going against that and saying like, you know, perhaps we put those words in there to better communicate with one another and to better get our messages yeah. across. And the fact that we use them isn't a bad thing. It's just a way, it's sort of a more enlightened way of, of talking to other people. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and I think that's kind of part of it. I mean, and I haven't read that article, but you know, that's really interesting to think about to just be like, oh, well, here's the way women talk. And like, maybe it's wrong. Maybe they should change. And then so I think it's good that people are starting to be like, well, why should we change? Like, I don't know. Like, why is that the norm that like we're doing something wrong? 
and we have to change the way we do it because, you know, I think because feminism means freedom to me, like the most radical thing we can do as feminists is to trust women and support women, like of all kinds, unequivocally in all situations. And if they're in situations different than our own or out of our comfort zone, and there's this kind of colossal waste of time spent on shaming each other and saying, you know, this person isn't a feminist because she dresses like X or she does X or she has X body parts. And it's just, to me, it's antithetical to the movement, you know, like we shouldn't have to apologize. And that includes not apologizing for our apologies in our emails. Absolutely. Okay. Amen to that. So, um, so I want to talk about Etsy because I bought my t-shirt from you from mm-hmm. your Etsy shop. And um, you've had this Etsy shop, as you talked about earlier, since 2012. Um, and I just wonder why Etsy? Like, I think, you know, you've got a wonderful audience from Taproot, from Sonia's Chickens, from other projects that you've done. Um, so you could potentially have your own shop on your own site. You have a Squarespace site, mm-hmm. which supports a shop if you wanted it, but you're on Etsy. I don't know if you plan to stay there for a long term, but that's where you've been. And I know your shop gets incredibly busy at times because um, we emailed a while back <laughs> when you were like, oh my gosh, I have way too many orders. What, how do I create some systems to like handle this? Yeah. Um, and I don't know how helpful I actually was, but, um, but I oh, wondered, <laughs> um, but I wondered sort of like why Etsy? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think initially since I started in 2012, like I was still in school at that time, so I was looking for something very easy and like that I wouldn't really have to create from scratch because when I created it in 2012, I was actually still in college and my mom like was doing all the fulfillment for me. And at the time, like orders were sparse enough that, you know, I was probably sending out one or two orders a week. Um, And so I would like go home and get the prints printed and sign them. And then my mom would send them out and she was like really happy to do it because it wasn't too much of a commitment. So that's what I did throughout college. And so originally it was Etsy because Etsy was kind of in my view, the only option, like it's just what you do. Like if you want to sell your prints online, it's the default, you know, it's what you do. And it was easy. And, you know, like whenever I had a question about how to do something, there's tons of resources about how to do it. You know, it's you're not doing as much kind of groundbreaking, which I'm like, ah, I don't have time, you know, so um, that's originally why I chose Etsy and, um, I've stuck with it because as my shop has grown, it's also, um, still been useful to kind of be working with a system where everything's built in and, and I'm not kind of building it from the ground up. Um, because as it's grown, you know, like I started to have more orders a week and I was taking giant piles of stuff to the post office, the post office. And then one day I was like, Oh, Etsy has a thing where you can print your own Own postage through Etsy and like the addresses are just there because I would go through and like handwrite all the addresses on everything and take them to the post office and then mark it as shipped manually on Etsy. And so the day that I figured out I could buy all the postage through Etsy was huge. And, and so, so it's really like kind of evolved with me and my business as far as ease goes. And, and the reason that I've stuck with it is just because it's it's easy and I know how to do it now. Um, and, and also, you know, the social media aspect of Etsy is really beneficial. Like, I don't really use Etsy as social media necessarily, but, um, you know, in terms of, like, I don't actively go on there and, like, fave shops and stuff. You know, like, maybe if I'm doing Christmas shopping, I will offhand. But, you know, some people really do that and they're really into, like, the culture of seeking things out on Etsy and favoriting them and making treasuries 
And that part of it is great because, you know, it's, it's again, like putting yourself out there online. It's like be everywhere, you know, like that's helpful. It's just being everywhere, like having an outlet on most sites where people will be looking for my work to find my work. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, and I, and I, Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I think Etsy, in some ways, it's like a well-oiled machine. Um, yes. And uh, Janine Zotkis, who I talked about earlier, um, who was a cover artist for Taproot, she, when she was on the show, that's how she described why she stayed on Etsy, just because it kind of just functions on its own. And I, I wonder if people find you natively there. In other words, I wonder if people are coming to that shop not because they're like Phoebe Wall, but because they're like, oh, cool shirt. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I hope so. Like, I don't really do much advertising. Like, I've I've never done, like, sponsored stuff or um, I've never done Etsy ads. Yeah, me neither. But but I hope that, like, you know, if people are Googling, like, looking up on Etsy, like, prints or feminism t-shirt, like, I put all those tags in. Right. So I hope that some people are able to just, <laughs> you know, like, stumble upon it. But, you know, I do think, and especially this um, – new year when I'm kind of planning out my business goals for the year, I have been starting to think about building a shop through my Squarespace, but probably I would kind of do both or at least keep Etsy for a while or keep it for some things because it is such a good tool to have. Um, and it will probably take me a while to really kind of like build my shop the way I want it to be from the ground up. And a lot of it has to do with crunching numbers, you know, as far as like, okay, like, is it actually less in fees? You know, if I'm not paying my Etsy fees to work through Squarespace, so like right. that encompasses my subscription to Squarespace and then you have to do Stripe and then you have to do like right. whatever the other sh third party ShipStation, you know, and then so once you're subscribing to Stripe and ShipStation and MailChimp and Squarespace, <laughs> right. th is that actually any less practical than paying my Etsy fees? <laughs> yeah, no, it's a good, that's a great question. And my answer to that has just been to keep both. Yeah. Um, that's been my answer for sure. And that when the Etsy customers come in, that I then invite those people to join my email newsletter. And once they do, then their next purchase will be from my own shop. And so I kind of keep Etsy there as um, as like advertising. Like new yeah. people find me and then they are funneled in and then they're part of my my sort of weekly newsletter group and uh, and we're good to go, you know? So yeah. that's how I think about it. So Totally. And and running a shop has been interesting because like I, I started having like a, a little contractor assistant coming in and helping me a few times this um, this fall and winter, which was so helpful because I love running my shop, but it's always very much been like a secondary idea to me. Like I want to do illustration. I want to do children's books. And then if I can have a shop, I will. But it's definitely started to reach this threshold of like my shop is now what I spend most of my energy on. And it's really hard to balance that with like actually creating and spending time on other projects. So I'm just, I feel like I'm still like totally in the thick of the learning curve of how to deal with running a shop effectively and productively and, you know, to make things like beautiful and streamlined and yeah. on time, you know, when, when in reality, you know, a huge part of me is like, but I just want to be drawing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that, um, especially around the holidays, you yeah. get, you sort of get into this feeling like if, if traffic and, and purchases are always this volume, I'm never going to function again. Like I'm yeah. never going to be able to, to do anything but this. Totally. Um, like, and it's like a thinking, terrible – like it's a great feeling, but it's also like a terrible feeling. Like I oh, can't totally. do this. Yeah. Like I was just thinking the other day, I was like, oh my gosh, I haven't like made a painting in right. like five months. And I was like, that's because I've been hustling, sending out like 
200 orders a week. Right. <laughs> exactly. Know? And, and right. And so it starts, to, it starts to become problematic. And I think yeah. for me, this, my lesson this year was that I need seasonal help. Like I can't, yes, exactly. I can't expect that December is going to be okay. Like I just can't, <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's not, not it's be, not going to okay. be okay. Like this was the last year where I was like, I can just do this with me and my husband. No, I can't do it anymore. So yeah. Yeah. So that's okay. Now I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, okay. So I want to talk about our recommendations and you wanted to recommend some brush pens that sound terrific. Um, and they're called Pentel pocket brush pens. Yeah. So those are my favorite things to draw with. A lot of people on Instagram and stuff are always asking me like what my paints are and what my favorite brushes are. And a lot of the time I don't respond, which sorry, <laughs> but um, it also is just like, oh, if I'm going to respond to everyone, no, you can't take forever. <laughs> so can't. this is a great opportunity to tell people what my pens are. And now I'll just tell them to listen to this podcast. So Pentel pocket brush pens are great. They have refillable cartridges. And if you don't want to keep buying the plastic cartridges, you can also um, manually refill them with ink. And I love them. They're what I do most of my drawing with. Okay, great. Good to know. And they create, because they're a brush pen, they can create a fine and a wide line. Yeah. Like I like to keep one that's kind of like the the end of the brush is more like brushy and damaged and I keep less ink in it kind of so that it creates a dry brush effect. And then I like to keep one around that's like really inky um, so that I kind of have like two different textures I work with. Okay, good. That's good for people to know. So uh, I wanted to recommend the Uppercase Magazine Compendium, which I just purchased and it came just a few days ago. And basically what it is, is a collection of profiles of all kinds of artists and craftspeople who sort of made an impact this year. Um, And it is wonderful. Each profile is maybe two and a half pages and beautiful, luscious photography. It's a really thick, I don't remember exactly how many, but there might be like 50 or 100 profiles in there. I'm learning about all kinds of new artists. And if you like seeing the insides of people's studios and hearing about their work and how they got started and what keeps them going, um, it's just wonderful. So I've been reading it. I have it next to my bed. I've been reading it at night and just reading one or two profiles before I go to bed. And I think it's just a really nice way to wrap up the day. So I recommend the Uppercase Compendium. And um, I'm finding all kinds of new people in there to to follow on social media, potentially have them on the podcast and um, write about. So I have a lot, I've really loved it. That sounds cool. Yeah, it is cool. Um, maybe you'll be in there in the future. <laughs> you should oh, be maybe. There. Yeah, it should. It's cool. Um, okay. And you wanted to um, recommend an artist, and I'm going to mispronounce her name, but is it Morocco Machico? I think so. Okay. I've, I've also never said her name out loud. Okay. But yeah, it's, I think it's Morocco Machico. Um, she's someone who I discovered on Pinterest. I think she lives in Japan, and she makes these beautiful kind of like folk artsy, like really colorful paintings. I'm totally obsessed with them. Yeah. And they're very, um, I don't know how, uh, what the right word is, but they almost look like they were made in a rush. Yeah. Right. But they're not like when you stop and look at them, you're like, you're like, Oh, that's something you're like a little kid drew. And then you look at it and you're like, Oh wait, no, it's not, you know? Yeah. 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 Which to me is like kind of the best form of art. Like they're kind of weird and mysterious and you don't know quite how they're made. And you're like, did a kid make this? Did uh, an adult make this? I don't know, but it's creating something really magical and weird. Yeah. And is she on um, Instagram? I wonder because I, I just, don't know. She should be. Okay. I looked at her website, but I wasn't sure. 
Um, yeah. Seems like something that would be a good thing to to follow on Instagram as sort of like a daily Definitely. And a lot of her website is in Japanese too. So right. I was kind of like clicking around just enjoying everything regardless of whether I could understand it or not. Right. What it says doesn't matter as much as yeah. what it looks like. Yeah. Cool. And I wanted to recommend um, – I just took Elisa Burke's uh, online art journaling class with my kids over break. Um, so when my 11-year-old was especially interested in it, and it's just really nice. It's on a private blog, and it, I'm not much of a journaler or an art journaler, but we did it together. And so you watch these short videos, and then she gives you some different exercises to do. It's very simple materials. And my daughter got super into it, and she learned about like how to mask out spaces on the paper and write and um, incorporate text in her into her like um, you know her artwork that she was making. And she did. I have a whole pile of them sitting right. right next to me. She did some really beautiful things. It was wonderful to do. I mean, it would be great to do by yourself, but it's also really a nice thing to do with kids if you have time in the afternoons or a break coming up. I really recommend. It's And it was not expensive. It was maybe $20. Um, and you get a whole bunch of videos and lots of exercises to do. So that was fun. Um, and you have one final recommendation, which is um, at Blackwater Pond, which is Mary Oliver reading Mary Oliver. Yeah, it's an audiobook that um, I got a long time ago and imported onto my computer. And it's, I love it. I love Mary Oliver poetry and I love it even more read by her. It's the most calming thing in the world. And there's like these little musical interludes and she's just like really beautifully and calmly reading a whole bunch of like a lot of her most famous poems. I like to listen to it a lot when I'm working. And it's, sometimes it's really funny because like one of the tracks will come up on shuffle like while I'm listening to other music. So it'll be like a really like jiving song. And then all of a sudden it'll go quiet and Mary Oliver's voice will just say like uh-huh. some herons <laughs> and the energy totally changes. <laughs> um, but listening to the whole thing straight through, it's like really meditative and beautiful. It kind of puts me in a trance. I love listening to it while I work. Okay, that's a great recommendation. Well, Phoebe, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshy Naps podcast. And if somebody wants to send you a message or visit you online, where is the best place to find you? Yeah, well, I do. I have a website, which is phoebewall.com, and you can kind of find everything from there. But I'm also on Instagram, and my public Facebook page is Phoebe Wall Illustration. Okay, super. And we should just clarify your last name is W-A-H-L. Yes. Okay, super. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. Yeah, and you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. And thank you to Spoonflower for sponsoring today's episode. Upload your design and print some custom fabric or check out Phoebe Wall's Spoonflower shop and print some fabric featuring her beautiful illustrations. Use the code ABBY15 at checkout, and you'll save 15% on each item in your order. That's A-B-B-Y-1-5 at checkout. Thanks, Spoonflower. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time. 